Hello and welcome back to another episode of Life of Brian. Mm. Brian, hello. Hello, what's going on? Oh, well, you've just rolled in straight off the Gator, which is your little machine. Just rolled straight into the driveway here, straight into your podcast studio in Lawn. How does it feel? You've got it. You've got a bit of a setup here. What do you mean? How does it feel? I'm getting ready for the invasion. I'm Peter Pub Weekend down here of twenty of you guys, twenty li- of your you're generation. Li- you're twenty. Literally, you're literally Harrison. covered in dirt and sweat. What are you? What, what do you, you know been how, doing? Do you've got know scratches how- all over. You're bleeding on the couch, right? <laughs> What are you do, doing? Do you know how much work goes into preparing just for you idiots to come down here and destroy the place? Yeah, we're very like grateful. You'd be pissed we're very by lucky. seven o'clock. You'd be in the vodka and raspberries or whatever you have, and uh, you'll be absolutely up, up, upside down very early in the evening. Then you'll be ringing me to try and get you into the pub, and oh, it's a nonsense. And you guys love it, Peter Pub, because you're an old-time people. We watcher. have got 25, 25 under thirty. Two-year-old staying here this weekend. That's an exaggeration. No, that's not an exaggeration. You, you, Jesse's got ten. Yeah. Now I won't go through the anyway. rest of the brothers, but uh, it's a, it's a, it's anyway. fun. This is what it's all about. Yeah, this is what it's all about. Apparently. <laughs> apparently. Anyway, yeah. So we're brought to you by Clubby Sports. Yep. Um, you have no idea what Clubby Sports. Yeah, no, are. no. What Clubby you, Sports. You, this is the Dylan Buckley and his group that it's getting together and just. Uh, Joining all these businesses and it's under one big umbrella, yeah. Clubby Sports. And we are, we're an associate with the Resi's podcast and they've been doing some great things. I was actually watching a social clip today um, of Checkers, who's who's a mine and the Marmalade boys, and he's on he's on the Resi's podcast and he was talking about how he had a dream and he woke up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. and he had to write what happened in this dream down. And you've got no idea what I'm talking about because no. I haven't prepped you for this. But he woke up and he had a dream. He's a big Big Bash fan. Well, I've got no idea what's going on. But he said the dream was that he needs to get Jake Fraser McGurk on the Wheat Bix box. Do you know who Jake Fraser McGurk is? I don't know what you're talking about, mate. Oh, I, I know you don't. No, that's why it's hilarious. I, I don't know. Do what you remember when Brett Lee was the face of Wheat Bix? Yes. How many Wheat Bix was um, okay. Brett Lee doing? No How idea. How many can you do? Didn't interest he me. He was doing 12 Wheat Bix. I don't have Wheat Bix. Yeah, I know you don't. Anyway. Moving on. Um, so, uh, by the way, how is it that we are a podcast and we're promoting another podcast? Because we're, we're part of the network. Right, okay. Yeah, we're looking after each other. So, yeah, you mentioned Peter Pub is this weekend. What else has been going on with life? At New Year's Eve, what did, what did you get up to? Uh, it's not a big thing. Went for dinner, left dinner at half past 11, uh, wandered past the pier down here at Lawn, watched the fireworks in the car. Didn't bother getting out of the car. Thought in the car was pretty. Actually, it was light rain. That's why was I Tanya with car. you? Tanya was with me. That's pretty romantic. Uh, not really. We just not happened, very romantic. We just happened to run into it on the way home. Oh, so it was, it was an accidental pure moment. fluke. <laughs> pure fluke of romanticism. Pure fluke. So yeah, not much other than uh, that. Uh, had a couple of good days down here. Weather's starting to pick up a little bit. So it's been. Other than that, it's been a disaster down here with the with the weather. Anyway, let's not talk about the weather because that's what everyone talks about. Let's talk about uh, um, football. Anything happening? Cl- uh, Clayton Oliver. Yep. Melbourne Footy Club. What, what, I've heard of him. I don't know. You're well, of, so what, what's you're the, of his generation. What's what the actually hell is going, going? on? Because so I don't know. They're saying the official word is, oh, don't quote me, but it's something along the line. Um, he's having time off for mental health so he's reasons. So he's not showing up to training at the moment. To, yeah, to get himself right. And, and I did note that. He is using his own practitioners as distinct from the club practitioners. They said that in the 
in the and Middle a East. practitioner, you're def- uh, medical persons. Yeah. Middle, um, and I'm just wondering, so because it seems to be sort of ha- partly covered by the mental health umbrella, which is a bloody big umbrella these days. Is it mental health? Is it drugs? What is it? Are they both the same thing? I don't know. But he seems to be in a hell of a mess at the moment. And I is get it, the it, feeling it, that the Melbourne Footy Club are tiring of it. Um, I think they're support naturally very supportive, but I think they are tiring of the process. Do you think it's potentially the other way around? He's been scapegoated a little bit and he's having issues with the clubs and they're not sort of playing ball? I no. No, no. no you're, not, you're not sitting out training at this time of the year if you've got an issue with the club. Um, if you've got an issue with the club, that would have been sorted out at the end of last year, which it was apparently. Uh, he came down to lawn here. He, he went home halfway through the training cramp there and hasn't reappeared at training to my knowledge since. So this is this is something quite dramatic. Um, not sure what's going on. Strange. He's such a great player. Melbourne need him to win. They're still in this premiership window. They're desperate for to have their four-time best and fairest player playing. He's you know one of the best in the game. Yeah, could win a Brownlow one day. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some issues there for sure. Moving on. Well, sitting around the dinner table last night, myself, you, Jesse, Tanya, and Tanya's mum. Elaine, I thought uh-huh. you were just the filler on the show. You're all of a sudden coming in, and I'm, you, I'm just going to ask you another question. Now. And you can and you can take over. But yeah, I was at the dinner table. If that's what you're referencing, yeah. we we're talking about the greatest of all time, as in an athlete, what? sporting sporting Team person. Or person? We we're talking about an individual in particular, but then there's you know there's so many different sports, and well, it depends on I the, guess the popularity of the sport is what we yeah. came down to. First of all, if you're looking for the most popular. And best sports person in the world, most well known. Yeah, then it has to be a sport that transcends everyone and every country, or, or as many countries as possible. Now, NBA basketball is as popular as it is, and say Michael Jordan, for instance, LeBron James, uh, Kobe Bryant. Basketball doesn't transcend through all these other it's growing but countries. not there yet. it's yeah. growing definitely it's gone huge in the last since the Michael Jordan era actually as re, as a as a responsibility of the Michael Jordan era but you know and i know you're too young to appreciate but muhammad ali is the one for me now you'll say his records not as good as some others and all of that and and which is which is true but he transcended just about every country in the world every demographic in the world from you know, poverty stricken to the absolute, uh, you know, to the president of the United States. It was, he transcended everybody and he was good and he was charismatic and he was ultra popular. Now, I know it's hard for anyone under the age of, say, 30 to grasp the Muhammad Ali thing because you weren't brought up with him like we are. But he, he, he's one for me. Tiger Woods is another. Tiger Woods, just think about this. You go to any country in the world, Bump into someone on the footpath and say, do you know Tiger Woods? And I reckon most people in the world would know Tiger Woods. Yeah. Don't you reckon? And his record's pretty bloody good. I think he's one major short of Jack Nicklaus. So he's right up there as well. Yeah. Well, the the names that popped in, they were all very much individual sports, I think, is what you narrowed down. But you think of people like Tom Brady and Michael Jordan, you said – um, a few females. NFL doesn't transcend the world. Like Simone, Simone Biles has been the most dominant gymnast. Gym, gymnastics are their big event. Is big. once every four years. Exactly. Um, 
Serena Williams, Novak Djokovic. Unbelievable. The, even the tennis debate Federer. itself. Federer versus Djokovic versus Nadal, like. If you're including charisma, personality and ability and all the other things in, then Federer beats Djokovic. Djokovic obviously has more titles now, but Federer comes out in front in my book in the overall yeah. sports person. Yeah, it's an interesting debate. The best team of all time, as you said, in, in mm. the category of transcends yeah. popularity. I think what the dream team, and I know basketball doesn't transcend every country, but what the dream team did. Hang on. Isn't the dream team an Olympic team? Every, yes, what, I know, but this team, four years? this team, I think it, 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 my, a lot of people have the pub test. I have the footpath test. Walk <laughs> up to a person and say, have you heard of the dream team? Think of doing that in um, Chechnya, Chechnya. Think of doing that there. Think of doing it, what's that country on the top of Africa on the right-hand side where? um, Morocco. Raha comes from, Rawa. Oh, Eritrea. Eritrea. Think of people there. Would they know? Probably heard of the Dream Team. Maybe. Um, So, yeah, why is this? Is there someone else I'm missing in a team aspect? Greatest oh, team there's in the world. definitely some pretty dominant teams. Oh, like the All Blacks is one that comes to nah, mind. No, no one. No one in America knows who the All Blacks are. No one. No one in South America knows who the All Blacks are. That's true. But some of the uh, soccer Wait. teams, were the, uh, the World Cup is probably the pinnacle. So Well, it's the most popular sport in the world, soccer. But you name, you, 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 if I said to you Real Madrid, one of the best teams, name, name six players. Go on. Oh, I couldn't name six. You couldn't name it. I could name the whole bloody dream team. Yeah. Right? Yeah, my point made. It's a, a conversation, a debate, and, yeah, I don't disagree with you. That's good. Um, moving on, so we, we have done this a few times on the podcast, Brian's Content Corner. Have you been watching anything, any recommendations for the audience? Uh, yes. Now, you should watch, what's it called? It's on Netflix. It's, it's called Captains of the World, I think. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Captains of the World, it's about the last World Cup um, and it concentrates like all these uh, doco Netflix things do on these sports. Now they concentrate on four or five of, of the leaders of the best teams in the world, which this one does. Lionel Messi is, is, is one of the guys. They've got Ronaldo the is another. They've, They've got all the stars. I couldn't believe the access and the lineup. The I wonder what they pay them. them. I wonder what they pay them to do that. It's amazing. So well, We're four episodes in. We've been watching it last yeah, few nights. I think, there's, it's, it's really I think it's six episodes in total. And that is really good, really good. The other one, if you've got a bit of business, what, what brought what brought um, that to your attention, or what what do you well, like the, about it? The title "Captains of the World" immediately said to me that it was sport. I thought it could have been industry there at one stage. But what, what do you like about it? What draws you in? Uh, best players in the world behind the scenes with their comments. Yeah, uh, finding out who they really are. There's some pretty raw stuff in there as yeah. well. And 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 just hearing them in their natural habitat rather than hearing them at press conferences, which is all we get with yeah. world soccer. We don't get any of the behind-the-scenes stuff. So to see that was pretty – and there's another one too. I forget the name of it. something to do with the world. It's a uh, guy that's a leading CEO. is the CEO of Renault in France and then he went on to be the CEO of both Renault and Nissan in Japan. Uh, he built these companies and uh, up to – Billion-dollar revenues and he did a great job and he was the highest-paid CEO in the world. He gets jailed in Japan um, for uh, embezzlement or something like that. He didn't really do much wrong and then he was smuggled out. This is the leading mm. CEO in the world that's got the lavish life. He's smuggled out in a box 
one of those roadie boxes. I haven't seen this. Onto one. a private plane and because he's of Lebanese background and he refused to take French citizenship when he was the CEO of Renault, he held his Lebanese um, title, a passport, and he went back to Beirut and they haven't been able to touch him since. Wow, what's Great up? Great show. Forget Netflix. what it's called. Something, something in the world or something. Anyway, look it up. Yeah. Uh, Just back on the captains of the world, we've found it really interesting because um, you get to hear like the coach's address or a very small snippet of it, mm. the difference between um, the coaches and the Australian coach. The, um, They're very the, basic. The messaging is very basic but it's so Australian when you listen to it, you know, it's get out there and get after these bastards. It's like It's <laughs> like their medical. You know the medical in, in soccer is behind where we are. We're, we're extremely advanced with our AFL medical here with ACLs, orthopedics, muscle, the whole thing. Our sports science guys here I think are the best in the world. Soccer appears to be a mile behind in that field and a mile behind in the field that you just mentioned then. That is, you know, you're thinking great tactics in soccer. No, it's AFL football of 20 years ago address, isn't Mm. it? Yeah. That's what we've heard. Come on, boys, get up there and... Get stuck into them, these pricks. Don't let them. You can't walk off. You can't walk off that field with it. I'm thinking, where's the tactics? Where's let's get Messi out on the right flank and let's get him behind him a little bit and push up and crunch him. Where's that? But that opens up. That also opens up the debate that we had the conversation around last night. Around there's probably three different things that can win a game in those World Cup scenarios because there's a lot of luck involved. Is it what what matters most? Is it the individuals within the team, is it the effort? So like going all in or is it those tactics? No, it's the effort. The effort. At, at a World Any Cup. Any team can beat another I team. I think the bottom teams can beat a top team. As proven in the last World Cup, there were four or five really big so upsets. Morocco. Spain went out pretty early too, I think, or might have last eight, Spain or whatever. Um, but big teams can be upset, I think, because of effort. I mean, Australia did well to get in the last 16, was it? Yeah, yep. I think Australia got into the yep, last 16 Argentina. through effort, not through skill. Mm. Uh, got beaten, uh, unluckily got beaten by Argentina. Australia had a shot and missed, should have probably gone in the net to be 2-1 up and put the pressure on Argentina. So it, it for me the biggest thing at that particular tournament is is effort. Effort can beat skill. Yeah. Yeah. And one that you haven't watched but I have that I've recommended it to you is it's called The Society of Snow. But you know the story. This is the Uruguayan rugby team. Essentially, they go on their footy trip and they go into Santiago and Chile and they cross the Andes and the plane crashes mm. and they're out there for 70 days. Yeah. You so know this story? It's very old from the 80s. Yep. So moving on, um, we've got Michael Turner on the podcast. So we've pre-recorded this episode mm-hmm. so we know what the conversation is. What did you think of it? He he obviously has had a really interesting 12 months and he's a very close friend of yours. He's a Geelong Team of the Century member and a Geelong Falcons legend. Well, when you're faced with a life-threatening situation, I wonder how you react and that's what you'll hear in this story. Mick was faced with a life-threatening situation and still is um, and that's why you should listen because everyone reacts differently and uh, it's an intriguing story. Uh, Mick got pancreatic cancer, of course, and um, the the development of cures, et cetera, and treatments for pancreatic hasn't been as good as other other types of cancer and so therefore you're left very vulnerable and Mick understands all of that and that's that's why this is an, an intriguing um, insight to someone that is staring death right in the face. A very interesting conversation. Yep. Beautiful. All right, 
Mick Turner up next. 245-game superstar with the John Cats, former captain, All-Australian, team of the century, only father and son combination in the history of the game to be team of the century members. Mick Turner, good afternoon. Welcome to you. Yeah, good afternoon, Brian. Thanks for welcoming me. Oh, you're very it actually, formal. Um, it was actually 270 games, Brian. When was you it? Count, yes, when you count um, oh. night games, uh, games for Victoria and Geelong, it, it actually got up to 270. I was yeah. talking about your Geelong career, Mick. That's all right. 245 <laughs> games. So 270, right, okay. We'll give you and when I say we're in the studio, we're actually in your basement um, sort of lounge room office setup that I've just sort of makeshift into a studio, which this is the first time I've been in here, so it's pretty Exciting. In lawn. In lawn. Yeah, yeah. So it is. Mick, welcome to the basement. Yeah, well, thanks. It's uh, better than driving to Melbourne, Brian, so I appreciate the oh, effort. I normally lock people away <laughs> in here and you never know what happens. <laughs> We're sitting next to a cellar with a, probably a, a decent amount of wine in there in, in terms of the expenses. Yeah. Now, Harrison, i got something to confess here. You reckon I'm a bit... Uh, Bit strange. Yes. What is your confession, Brian? Uh, confessing that uh, I have a bit of a trait of a uh, little bit, you know, OCD sort of shared sort of tools hanging in the right spot and all of that sort of thing. We are dealing with a customer here today in Mick Turner who's, a, you know, he's a he's a torpedo on from me. <laughs> You're bad and okay. I've, I've so, a few experiences with Mick, he's worse. I, uh, yeah. I do my shed. What do you do? Well, the whole house, basically. But uh, if anyone's seen the David Beckham um, uh, yes. documentary, which is a great documentary, it made me feel a hell of a lot better because I've got a da- lot of David <laughs> Beckham traits. And after he actually showed his wardrobe, I went back and redid mine. So, so I, I like the idea he had of his T-shirts in order. Yes. And, and in they're colour. in colour order. Yes. So mine now are in colour order so I can pick them out as I go. And they're folded on a slight angle so yep. you can see how yep. many are there. I can see the colours, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have to look up. The colours are all there. I've moved them from the top drawer to the bottom drawer. I open the drawer and they're all, they're all there. I've and actually got one on tonight and it didn't take one long to, for me to find it because it's black. And, so you, and your fridge, what would you – if I opened your fridge today, what would it look like? Uh, Karen goes crooked me for doing that, but uh, I normally check the fridge when I get something uh, out of it and everything's – even the ice creams are in their right place. They're colour-coded. So all the labels <laughs> are facing clearly so you can read them? No, I just like them straight. I just – when I see – I open the – uh, the fridge, I like to see the gherkin straight, uh, the pickled onion straight, and they're all together because they're in the same sort of food so group. What about, the cucumb- straight. what about the cucumbers and the crisper? Do they have to be straight? Well, no, no, no. They, they're a bit more uh, mucked up a little bit, but right. I know they're all vegetables and Karen's going to use them, so I'll just leave them in their plastic bags. I can admire a nice aesthetic, aesthetic so I can hear what you're saying, but to the point of like explain what your bathroom would look like and – do you even use it because you don't want to make it look messy? Um, I don't like shaving in there. Yes, I don't, this is where yeah. I'm going. Yes. Where do, where, do you oh, sh- where do you shave no. because you don't want to get the bathroom no, no, messy? No, no, before I came out here today, uh, I thought it might have been filmed, so I did have a shave and put some moisturiser on. But uh, don't be uh, – cleaning my teeth's uh, okay, but you yeah, don't really like shaving in my bathroom because you get all those little bristly Brian, things everywhere. he shaves down at the local bloody beach cafe. <laughs> but there's one thing worse. There have been several reports to the police station in Lawn that there's a man in this – in Polworth Street in Lawn that showers on his front lawn every day. Every time he has a shower, two degrees, 42 degrees. It don't matter – You'll see this man showering. In clothes, of course. Uh, no, no, no. On your well, front lawn. No, well, when the house was That's built. That's true. Well, yeah, when the house was built, I do have an outside shower. I like showering in the outside no, shower it's, for the aesthetics. It's, it's, it's a shower uh, on the front lawn. Yes, I know, but it's not. It's got a, 
um, a bin enclosure in front of it. But, oh, look, I must admit you're right, I have been caught a couple of times dashing to the garage to get my towel in the nude and I've been caught a few times. But, no, I just love showering outside. It's just a part of nature. And this, I'm a surfer and I just like doing that sort of stuff. This is an unusual customer because <laughs> tell us about the story. Like uh, we'll get back to your Geelong days shortly, but tell us about your story because you always have been very particular about the way you dress and present yourself and – the night you wore the leather pants, the famous leather pants uh, that became folklore in, in footy, um, and you were in, still living in Warrnambool at home. Tell us about that. What was that story? Well, the first person I saw that had leather pants was uh, Sam Newman, and um, we had a football trip back in 1980 for memory, and uh, in Hong Kong I ordered a pair, and uh, they were made and I took them home and uh, wore them a couple of times in Geelong because I'd get, get away with it there. But my father was quite a conservative person, oh, very actually conservative. very conservative, good uh, Catholic and uh, a great person. And um, I thought I'll just test the waters here a little bit, not so much with my parents but with the uh, people in Warrnambool who are a little bit more conservative. It's more Levi's jeans territory down there or Wranglers and um, thought I'd wear the leather pants down to the Lady Bay and uh, – Anyhow, I come striding down um, our hallway. Dad had his back to me and my mother saw me coming at a white T-shirt on. I think I had a pair of cowboy boots and the leather pants and she's waving at me to, as if to say, stop, don't, stop, 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 don't come into the room <laughs> with those leather pants off. For God's sake, he's going to go off his brain, which he certainly would have. And uh, as he turned his head, we had a, a, like a couch, pretty much like we're sitting on here, even though people can't see it, and I ducked down behind the couch so he couldn't see what I was wearing and finished the conversation. He was distracted <laughs> by the TV and I snuck back to the bedroom and put my, my old tattered Levi's on, which he wasn't that happy with either. So, And you've since passed those leather pants on to one of my boys, haven't I've, you? I've given them to Harrison, but uh, I've had oh. a bit of weight loss lately, so I want to get them back for a little bit of time so I can uh, I take think a Pip, photo and I, I put think, them on Instagram. I think Pip Squeak's got them in his closet at the mm. moment. Yeah. So speaking of weight loss, uh, you have had the 10 months from hell. People out there, a lot, a lot of people in the footy world know, but you have had pancreatic cancer for the last uh, well ten months since you were diagnosed. You had all of the major components of that: the, the Whipple operation, the recovery, the chemo, all the things you can imagine. But first of all, just just tell us a little bit, Mick, about pancreatic cancer and the chances of surviving it. Uh, well, when I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, because I had joined us. Um, uh, that was the first sign, was it? Yeah, the joiners was the first sign. I'll go through that. But uh, your chances of survival uh, at that stage are 15% um, unless you can go through these five different stages, which a major part is the operation and the chemotherapy. So uh, so I remember them taking me into a room at um, uh, St. John of God Hospital and telling me, and I knew they were telling me something pretty serious because there were two doctors there and three nurses. I think they thought I was going to flip out or something. But to be quite honest about it, and I've said this to you myself, I don't fear death. What I fear is losing my quality of life and uh, that's the thing you fight for. And, um, you know, when you're really, really ill, um, you know, you just want to feel comfortable, you want to lie on the couch, you don't want anyone annoying you, you would you would know that when we dealt with everything. And, um, you know, you just don't want to spend the rest of your life being grumpy to your wife or your kids or your friends or your grandchildren. So that was pretty important to me. But, look, I was pancreatic cancer is a bad one. Uh, the survival rate, if you go through these five things, is, is still only 50%, whereas most normal cancers now is uh, 90%. Yep. Uh, that's, you know, for men, prostate and breast cancer and, you know, all the other cancers. The problem with the uh, pancreatic cancer is it, it, it's usually diagnosed too late. 
and your pancreas sits at your back right next to your liver and from the research I've read, and I might be 100% right, but pretty much if you get cancer in your liver, you're gone at stage four and they can't do anything about it and your pancreas sits right next to that organ. So, you know, when you go and get any treatment for cancer, they're trying to keep it, you know, out of that organ, whether it's lung cancer, but they're, you know, desperately trying not to let it get to your liver because once you get to your liver, you're gone and they're just going to have to manage it. You make it sound easy, but the Whipple operation alone, the first stage of getting through this yep. was basically the removal of your organs organs, yep. and sort of out of the way so they can get to where they need to get to and to check all organs as well. Yep. That's well, a, it's a horrific, you know, seven to nine hour operation. So you're talking like a full opening up Ooh. of... Mm. Yeah, of, yeah. of your body and they're going through and fine tooth combing there. It actually takes a lot of your organs out of your body to get to your pancreas wow. and get um, yeah. get to it. But, look, it's it's, it's a five-stage thing. So, look, I got an early alert with jaundice. I just went outside one night to go to the toilet and uh, my urine was uh, basically the colour of Coca-Cola and I called my wife out just to say, well, yeah, this doesn't look right. She said, well, your eyes are yellow and then I had a good suntan and pulled my jocks down and my skin was yellow. So... Right, and you hadn't seen it prior to that. No, it just it sudden. Just happened in one day. Did you feel like any other symptoms? Just, like just tiredness, just feeling a bit off just and a bit lethargic. tired. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, probably just a bit tired. But look, people have really got to listen to their bodies. That's one thing I will say to people. Yeah, you know, and yeah, you know, without getting too gory about it, yeah, you know, your toilet habits, um, your eating habits, you know, whether you're tired and all that sort of stuff. You really got to listen to your body. So anyhow, I rang a very good friend, Jason, who I surf with at the Lawn Hospital. He said, "Mate, that's very serious. You need to get into." the Epworth Hospital. So went in there and had some tests done and, um, uh, you know, they were sort of diagnosed as um, probably pancreatic cancer. So um, to explain to people what happens is my gallbladder uh, wouldn't drain through my pancreas because of the fact I had a tumour in there and then you have this build-up of this material called bilirubins under your skin and it so makes So the pancreas is like, a, it's like a filter, is it? Well, the pancreas is ma- mainly... Um, for diabetes right. and, and interacting with your digestive system. So, but what happened was my my gallbladder couldn't drain through my pancreas and into my digestive digestive system because of the tumor. So, that all those juices and that build up my body is in these things called bilirubins, which uh, crystallize under your skin and make you itch. So that was a massive challenge because uh, it was just like red hot um, electric ants running all over my body. So I was ho- hospitalized for a week with that, um, and yeah, I was scratching that. I was actually scratching the skin, which you would have seen. Uh, off my arms and my legs, it was that bad. So then they put a stent in, um, stent in my um, in my uh, uh, gallbladder and pancreas, so it would drain through my body, and that took a while to come up, get under control. About three weeks. Then we had the big Whipple procedure, as you talk about. That for me was a nine-hour operation. Now, I said to my wife and my son Che, if uh, this operation goes for three hours, I'm in a lot of trouble because they would have sewn me up. Yep. Because if they open you up and, and look at you and go to your um, liver and see that there's any cancer and do a biopsy, which they do do, in your liver, they'll just sew you back up again. So I said, you know, if I come out in three hours, I'm in trouble. If I go the whole, you know, eight or nine hours, um, I've still got to get over it, but at least they've been able to do the operation. So you have the operation and you think this can't get any more horrendous because I'm in here having this operation. I've been diagnosed with this bloody thing called pancreatic cancer and I've got chemo ahead of me and we'll get onto that in a moment. Mm. But while you're under the knife and your guts is literally laying on the table next to you, your wife has an accident in the car. Yep. Getting she she took your son out to the airport or vice versa, 
She arrives back at the hotel, which is next to the hospital where she was staying and caring for you, so it was close to the hospital. It was early in the morning. It was dark. Um, What happened? Well, I was, uh, I'd finished the operation by then and I'd, I got out of ICU and I was just recovering in my in my room and uh, my son Levi drove up from Barwon Heads and, uh, and and came and saw me and gave me the, um, the news that that had happened with Karen. So um, she was actually trying to get into a car park at the back of like a Quest and there was a bloke hanging around a dumper bin that's Had a boom a bit, gate. Had a, one of those sliding yep. gates and um, anyhow, a bloke hanging around a dumper bin in a hoodie sort of spooked her a little bit so... Like a lot of those modern cars, when she got out, she forgot to put it in park because they turned themselves off. Went to um, scan the gate to get open to get back in the car as quick as she could and um, not be uh, not be harassed by this person who may or may not have harassed her. And as she got in the car, she meant to put a foot on the brake and she hit the accelerator. So um, she got caught between the wall and the car door and, and the car and was dragged down um, a concrete wall. And luckily there was a gap and she actually fell out of the car which may have saved her life. So, what what happened to her? Well, she nine had, broken ribs. She had nine it? multiple broken ribs. Um, she had a, a cracked scapula, uh, multiple cuts and abrasions, um, a collapsed lung, um, plastic surgery on a leg. Intensive um, care for how long? Days. Uh, intensive care was about uh, a bit over two weeks, and the only reason she got out was because my son Che, who had gone back to New Zealand, and his partner Grace came back. And lived at our place, and and you picked me up and and, mm. and took me home. So I went. Uh, I went and saw her. She was in mm. that much pain. Yeah, you're in pain. You, you're life threatening. She's life threatening. Yep. All of a sudden, all on it just. How did that make you feel? In the fact that you're in the condition you were, and this news comes in about Karen, and yeah. you weren't there to care for her. Like, um, yeah. Look, it's uh, look. My son Levi is a very very capable person, and he's. Uh, wife Brooke looked after the grandkids, and uh, Levi just goes into um, management mode. He's he's got a pretty successful real estate business with a couple of mates in uh, in Barwon Heads and the Bellarine Pinch, so he does really well. So he went into management mode, and and Che came back, and and Grace, um, who works for Rip Curl in e-commerce, um, so she's very capable on the computer. So look, I remember having meetings in the room. Um, I'd talk to Levi, and and Levi talked to Che and Grace, and we would plan everything and and get things sorted out. So. Look, I'm I'm pretty much Levi's very process driven. So am I. I wasn't really worried about my operation. Very process driven, you are. Mm, yeah. So I wasn't One, really worried about two, my operation three, four, because I because uh, I was because uh, I was in hospital recovering, and I actually got out of hospital in a week. You know, most a lot of people went before this big operation. You're warned that you could be in for a month or two months, which you know. But I didn't have any pre-existing medical conditions or on any medications or anything, so I was actually got out in a week. So. Um, you know, I can actually remember Brian coming and getting me and uh, we had to get Karen home in an ambulance. But by the time Karen got home, you know, I was obviously recovering from the op. I had to be careful. But um, we had Che and Grace living at our house, my son and his partner, and um, and uh, a lot of friend support, uh, which was just pretty much amazing in, in Lawn. And, uh, it takes and, a village you just, with that type of stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's it does. It's been awesome to see the, the community mm. support that I've yeah. seen. I won't give the – I won't give – yeah, you've had incredible support from mm. the whole football community and mm. wider community. It's yeah. been absolutely amazing. You'd know that more than anyone. Yeah. But so then you come out and, you, and I don't want this story to go on forever, yeah. but you have the chemo and you have the absolute uh, 10 out of 10 amount that yeah. any human being can handle. Yeah. And Is you this the and cancer you, and, cell count? And, and you weren't handling that well, were you? No. Well, um, look, the, the, the four stages, you have a lot of uh, pathology. So your pathology goes off. You have CT, PET scans and blood blood tests and all that sort of stuff. But 
Look, the most challenging part I found wasn't so much the physical stuff because, look, I'm not saying we're heroes or anything, Brian, but, you know, we've all played a lot of footy and in footy you have a lot of operations. So the physical stuff, whether it's a knee operation or your Achilles or whatever it is, um, you tend to be able to handle that. All right. What I really struggled with was uh, feeling ill um, and, you know, when you when you go into chemotherapy because it's pancreatic cancer, um, the first four doses I had were at 100%. So I was in the uh, Epworth in Geelong you know, sitting there for five or six hours getting this chemo pumped into me and then coming home with a bottle attached to a port that they put into me near my neck, which went into an artery, and that's pumped into you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, the Lawn Hospital were fantastic with me. I could go there on a Wednesday and, and get the, uh, the the chemo taken out, um, and then they give you – you're on steroids, they give you injections to recover, and uh, and you have a, another dose in two weeks' time. But after the first four doses, I went to my oncologist – and said, look, if this cancer doesn't kill me, your chemotherapy will. Because I dropped from 80 kilos to 64. So that's 16 kilos, which is a third of my body weight. And she said, look, I'll give you a month's rest, but we've got to get this finished because pancreatic cancer has got a very bad habit of coming back. So so you I, did get it finished? Yeah, so I did the next four doses at 80%, which is normal. And then for the last four, they drop, out, run, drop off one of the drugs. You still have to keep bringing the bottle home, which you saw. And I finished the last four, thank God, about um, – Three weeks ago, and, and now if I was going and, to rate myself, uh, and the edit, other day you received some results that yep. were very, very promising. Yeah, well, they give you blood tests all the way through to check all your functions in your body, but there's one test. It's not completely definitive, but it's a C nineteen nineteen test, which uh, uh, tracks how much cancer cells are in your bloodstream. So when my before my operation, I was seven hundred plus, and just the other day I had had the blood tests, and I was I was normal is thirty eight, and I'm down to twenty five. So wow. I'm below so, normal. Sorry, could you, did you just say seven hundred was mm. the count before and the a operation. normal person would be thirty eight? Yes, yeah, I was seven hundred plus. But the operation, yeah, is a big part of it because it removes the cancer out of your pancreas, and that once it's removed, you know, look, it can go to other spots. But uh, normal thirty eight. I'm at twenty five. Then I had a big CT scan as well, and they check. For cancer uh, growth in your body and your organs, and, and that was clear as well. So, yeah. so, so now every three months it's a blood test. If there's a spike in that uh, level of twenty five or thirty eight up, then they'll give you a CT scan to see what's causing that spike. And it's, you just got to play it like that. Now, in saying this though, at the end, as I said before, you've got a fifty percent chance of survival. Like most cancers, are ninety percent. So I've got to be realistic about that. It's got a bad habit of coming back, mm. so I don't get ahead of the game. It doesn't stress me or worry me. You just get on with your life and. Um, and make sure that you've got things well set up for your wife and your family, and uh, that, that's that's the way I look at it. Fingers crossed. You, yep. You're, yep. you're a good starting point now. So that's yep. uh, that you've 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 jumped every hurdle that uh, yep. the medical staff have yep. asked you to jump, and yep. you've jumped it without knocking one hurdle over. Mm-hmm. So you've done an incredible job to get where you are. So we wish you the best of luck with that. Did you have one more question on that, Harrison? Yeah, going back to the original diagnosis and then yes. the prognosis yep. that came with it. Mm-hmm. What? Were the immediate thoughts? What was going through yes. your mind in that initial this couple of weeks? This was the day of my son, my eldest son's wedding. Yeah, what goes right. through your mind when you yeah. th- you're thinking, "Fuck, yeah. I hardly know what this is," yeah. but it sounds really, really bad from what everyone tells me. What goes through your mind? Yeah, well, I think most people would tell you I'm a bit of a different cat. You know, you said you didn't Brian, fear death. Brian knows that. No, I don't. He fe- obviously feared something. I don't fear death. And when my father got cancer at 69, uh, he said the same thing to me. So yeah, you know, I don't. I don't fear death. I've had a really good life. Um, you know, obviously, I, I, I want it'd be terrible. Yeah, you miss your friends and your family and everything like that. But, That's bullshit. But you, you've no, got to fear death. No, I don't fear death. I fear not having quality of life. I don't want to be sitting on a couch, 
um, marinating and not being able to do anything and, and have someone wipe my bum, you know, if you can excuse, mm. excuse the language. I don't want to live like that. So I want quality of life and I've got that back. I was going to rate myself out of 10 at the moment. I'd be eight. I've got to put some more weight on and, and get and stronger and hopefully get back in the surf, you know, which is one of my big passions. And uh, if I get back in the surf, I'll know I'm pretty normal. But, um, yeah, it's more quality of life for me. So I'm process-driven. I wasn't, I've had a couple of friends, you know, they chase it, chase it for the cure and go overseas. I was never going to go and do that. I was never going to go to a naturopath and have a natural, you know, healing and all that sort of stuff. I've got a great belief in, in our medical system in Australia. You know, we've got really great hospitals. They've been doing cancer research for a long time. We've got great surgeons here. So I just go through the process and say, right, I've got to do this now, then I've got to do that, then I've got to do that. And, and, and I'll go back and say again, the hardest thing I had to do with everything over 10 and a half months was the chemotherapy. The chemotherapy, um, you know, and there's different levels of it, but the chemotherapy is no, really but challenging. Mick, on the day when you were told, <laughs> did you think, no. oh, shit. I'm going to die. No. Did you think, what's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my house? What's going to – I'm going to – did you not think that? Because I don't think I could handle it as good as you did. Uh, no, I didn't think that. I, as I said to you, I, um, you know I'm an organised person, Brian, so I sort of just go into organised mode and, and started – the first thing I started doing was teaching my wife, because I've always done the finances, to teach my wife where our money was, what we've got. Um, what, had you been hiding it? Oh, a little bit of hide, hide a little bit here and there. <laughs> No, no, no. She knows what we've got, but how to pay the bills because I've, I've always paid the bills, put everything on direct debit. So basically got oh, – I'm pretty sure she's – Basically got all my finances organised. And, look, just before that, my mother died at 92 from cancer. And, uh, yeah, so mostly I've, I've spent, you know, getting that probate organised and we had a trust in Warrnambool and a whole lot of things. So broadly, yeah, just, just went into work mode to keep myself sane, I suppose. Broadly speaking, has it changed your perspective on life? Uh, it's taught me that people are very kind, particularly in a small community of lawn. And I haven't had the opportunity yet to actually thank them. I, I was going to go to the A team and thank them, but I haven't had the right moment or the right time to do it. But I was just really taken back about how many people actually contacted me, whether it was Eddie McGuire or Sam Newman, if you want to drop names, you know what I mean? Um, and also, particularly the local community, you know, people just, you know, and Brian managed a lot of the stuff early with Rick Barham, you know, messages from people and all that sort of stuff. But just people, you know, contacting you. And when when you're really crook, you're just trying to feel comfortable. You know, I wasn't up to talking to people on the phone. The only two people I spoke to outside my family group when I got crook was Brian Taylor and Tanya and also Rick and Wendy Barham. They're the only people I spoke to and they sort of managed that. But, um, yeah, and look, just the local lawn community, just fantastic, whether it was a text message or – you know, not so much they, were, they didn't ring you up because they didn't want to annoy you, but dropping stuff into the house like food and flowers for Karen and all that sort of stuff was was really amazing. So, look, it's just, um, it's you know, I can be, like Brian, I suppose, I can be quite hard sometimes, pretty brutally honest, and um, it just made me realise how uh, how kind people can be and it's something that's probably softened me a bit. I'm not sure a- you thought um, I would have liked to have got onto this earlier and the same with all the cancers and definitely yeah. pancreatic cancer. Do you have any advice for people? of your age group that are potentially coming into an age where this thing mm. is becoming more prevalent? Listen to your body. I just said it before. Yeah. Listen to your body. If your body's doing things that it doesn't normally do, you've got to listen to it, like, you know, tiredness or, you know, you've got to watch, you know, your toiletries, you know, you know, you know how many times you go to the toilet, what it looks like and all that sort of stuff. That's That'll tell you. And, um, yeah, just, just be aware of your body and, you know, if you can afford it, you've got to have private health cover because I've seen one of my friends go through the public system and we're very lucky in Australia because we've got Medicare 
Um, but the private health that I had, it was just seamless. I had a specialist in Geelong, a specialist in Melbourne, and an oncologist in Geelong. And, you know, you're dealing with the same people all the time and they're, and they're telling, you know, you're getting the same consistent information. And the other thing is if you are a crook, just don't go and face it on your own. Make sure you take someone with you. My wife came to everything. So if I was asking questions, she was asking questions, we can analyse it. And you've got to ask the doctors questions and put them under the pump a bit because it's your life and you've got to manage your own life. You just can't listen to what everyone says and take everything on board. All right, so you start the next stage of that and we don't know the result of the next stage and that is nope. having more tests every three months yep. down the track. So, uh, you know, as I said before, you're in a good starting point to uh, to start that second part. But Mick's also famous for, well, he's, he thinks he's famous for surfing, <laughs> but he knows some famous surfing people, uh, Wayne Lynch, of course, who was uh, down this way and he, he sort of taught me to stand up paddleboard. Are you proud of the fact that you taught me to stand up paddleboard? It was a pretty challenging thing, Brian, because uh, <laughs> we, we knew each other, but uh, it's not a bad story, this. And when, what size boat did And I when, st- when you came down the lawn, you were probably a little bit lucky in the fact that uh, stand-up paddle boards had just come in. And uh, as you say, mm. I, I, I... I was you, a pioneer. Yes, you were a pioneer. And, and Wayne Lynch was a very good friend of mine. And uh, Patagonia had opened up in Torquay and these Jimmy Lewis, you know, well, they were bigger than stand-up paddle boards, they were like boats. Um, had come in and I said, well, look, if you want to learn learn to stand up paddleboard, put your ego in your back pocket and it's just all about listening uh, to what you're told and, and just plenty of practice. So I'll give you a due. Um, we took you out to the pier or I took you out to the pier and you practised in calm water. Then you got used to the waves. Then you finally started surfing it. And then we all started coming down in size on the boards. And, um, you know, it's, I'd... Uh, then, we, then we cleared out the point. Yeah, we cleared, <laughs> cleared out the point a couple of times with a bit of bad behaviour, but uh, <laughs> there are certain rules that you, know, you had to get used to uh, surfing on the point. Um, one's called dropping in. The other one's, <laughs> if anyone annoys you, don't grab them and drown them and uh, certainly don't punch anyone or anything like that. Not saying that you did, but, uh, no, you, you pers- uh, pursued it uh, very, uh, very uh, dedicatedly, as you do most things, and um, and so, I would say you're you're a fairly good stand-up paddleboard rider now, and uh, um, you know, and you just got to realise what your limits are. You can't ride them at Cathedral, or as you've tried to do at the St George River, because if you go to really big waves, not only will they knock you off the board, but the board will drag you for ages, and it'll even pull your pants down, which yeah. happened to you at the George River. It did. So it was I pretty embarrassing. Got out with no pants on at all, <laughs> uh, one particular day. But tell us, we used to sit, or we sit down the beach at summer every summer, and uh, yeah. we have a, our tree there, and we've got our seats, and we've got a seat for you and a yep. seat for me, and perhaps a couple of other seats in case any stray people come along that we want to chat to. But it's the office, it's called it's the called office. office. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful, best spot in Australia to overlook the beach. We're mm. looking at things, and we we, we know the people sit on the beach and we know every characteristics don't we because we we've do. been seeing them for years we're people watchers and we're people watchers and we know what and we watch these people and we know the ones that can't swim and we get up and get ready to save them and the ones that can swim and the ones that are going to cause trouble and the yahoos that come down and, and then the, the footpath is behind you so you've got yep. all the people walking by and Pe- then the and people then the, are having affairs we can and, see and the lovelies them. the people yep. that are having affairs we can tell we <laughs> know you're not you can't hide it from yeah, us yeah. because we're bloody <laughs> micro examining yeah. you from the beach <laughs> all this is going Going on, and we have a rule down there, Mick, don't we, with yep. the seats and there's a couple of free ones that if you think the person is not deserved of being introduced either to you or to me, oh. that you are to stand up yep. and talk to them at the rear of the chair. Yep. If they get invited in, then that's a good sign, isn't they're, it? They're in the inner sanctum. Well, we yeah. probably shouldn't be saying this because the people who aren't invited to sit down <laughs> are going to think, gee whiz. But, no, look, it's all, it started years ago. I've been coming to Lawn for a long time and, and back in the day you could actually park your cars where we uh, 
are actually sitting and unload the cars with, for the kids and uh, get all the toys out. We have to park away a little bit now, but we bring everything down and um, look, it's just a great spot. You and I have been sitting there for a long time with our kids and uh, watch them all grow up. And um, and people like Mickey Roberts and Neil Roberts and a few other special people get to actually sit there. David Rappaport and uh, Solange, Solange, great yeah. friends of ours. And we've got to know a lot of people there. And, uh, and you know and, everyone in in a whole <laughs> the whole Surf Coast area. You know everybody that comes past. Well, being from Geelong, I've probably got an advantage, but. They don't come up and take my photo on their uh, iPhones like they do to you, Brian, and uh, they actually get me to take the photo, which is a bit embarrassing because as they leave, I actually say to them, I actually played more games than Brian Taylor, but he's famous because he's on TV. But I was a better footballer and because I'm not on TV, they don't even know who you are. Just so a half That's on an this. advantage. You guys don't do it as much anymore. But when I was a teenager, so from 13 to 19, you guys, and this is not an exaggeration, over summer, so from just before Christmas yep. until uh, what is it, Australia Day, Yep. you would be there every day yeah. almost without fail unless the weather didn't I, permit. I would get there at 7.30 in the morning, yep. put out the chairs. And yep. the chairs weren't just from home. You had no. them stored at the beach bar there. Yeah. So you'd bring them out and well, you'd sit there for two hours and no one was even up yet. No. I would sit there. Uh, I'd be there at 7.30 yep. and uh, I'd be waiting for someone to arrive. And you started taking the uh, community efforts and clean-up duties into your own hands. I remember you brought a shovel and you cleaned the uh, the Brian. shower area. Well, yeah. well, that You're pissed. picking up rubbish. We cleaned the, we didn't, <laughs> we cleaned the, the shower. Yeah. I even cleaned the restaurant just behind us because <laughs> the, it. the lazy bastard there, yeah. he wouldn't hose no. out the sand no, no, and no. annoyed the shit out of yeah, me and no, Mick that no. the guy wouldn't hose the sand yeah, out. No, no, so what right. was the agreement between you and the restaurant? Were you allowed to sit there? I, like, And you also like you used to order coffees there and you used to take them out and then they used to spit the dummy because you had the glass outside. It depends on who, who owned the, uh, had yeah. the restaurant because it has changed a few times with the different rules. When Bill Kuzner took down it, we yeah, used to great. get seafood platters yeah. on the lawn and Coronas. magnums of verve champagne. Coronas. <laughs> it was unreal. Yeah, he used to let me have a shave in the uh, in the toilet there. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, Jesus. But that's uh, changed a few times. But, uh, no, look, um, it's funny when uh, we're talking about being crook and that. One of the big things I'm going to do this year, and Brian's going to come, we've got to get down and spend more time on the beach, but it's pretty much um, weather restrictive sometimes. We didn't mm, have a great is. summer last year, but now El Nino's swung around. You know, it's going to be a good summer. Mick, we what, will be there. What were you thinking the mm. day? This is true. So we we have a tree. I, we, we call it the refrigerator because when you sit under this tree, it is that thick that it's it's it's. Fucking freezing. You let us swear on this show. You, you, you can oh, a little. Yeah. It is absolutely freezing, Mick, isn't that big? So yeah. when it's yeah, it 42 is. degrees, you just go two minutes under there and it's like you've been sitting in a freezer. It's 30. It is. Yeah. What were you thinking the day that I walked down and I had a, an Electus parrot oh, on my, my shoulder God. and I put him up in the tree? <laughs> what were you thinking? Well, look. Who's this knob? Look, a, a lot of people around this area know me, but you being on TV, everyone in Australia knows you, but – that bird, well, it was quite a big bird and it was red and you, you put it in the tree and I don't know, for some reason I went for a walk with you up the friggin' Main Street. We're walking up the Main Street <laughs> oh, lawn. You had, you've got the bird sitting no, on didn't. your shoulder. You did. No, you had the true. bird sitting on your shoulder. I said, I'm never coming up here again with you with that bird <laughs> on your shoulder. Then you came down and put it in the tree. But I think it flew away somewhere, didn't you? And then you we used it. to bring a border collie that wanted to oh, bite everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not a great dog person. You know, everyone loves their dog and I get it, but it's not my dog and I don't love it, so and, just keep it away from me. And the mix, mix pet hate mm. are holiday makers particularly, but mm. there are probably some locals as well. Yeah. 
that drop something on the ground. Oh, yeah. Mick will actually go and pick it up and give it to them. <laughs> and so you just drop it. Especially nappies, Brian. I don't yeah. like nappies. Oh, jeez. There's yeah. a lot of trouble with nappies. Anyway, so um, <laughs> so that's the, that's the beach. How did you two meet? Great. How do you two know each other? Because it's not just, a just through football, through footy, basically. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it was pretty late. We Mick, had an unbelievable footy trip uh, at the end of my career in, in 1988. Sure. Uh, when Geelong played um, Collingwood in Miami at uh, Fort Lauderdale. We played at the Joe Robbie Stadium, you know, back so Miami Dolphins. We, for premiership points. No, no, no this no. was for the Foster's Cup. So, uh, oh, right. so you know, when um, uh, John um, John Elliott uh, owned um, CUB or ran, you know, owned, CUB, owned yep. CUB, um, he had the, the Foster's Cup, which was played um, in London particularly and, and also in America. And I think Hawthorne had played North Melbourne also uh, in, London. in London. And what actually happened is that uh, so we got to spend together, which was fantastic. So the, we stayed at the same hotel. Same hotel. We were in Miami at the same hotel. Lee Matthews is there and Brian and Dennis Banks and all the boys and that. Yeah, and, uh, know, we, Bruce Linder yeah. and Mick Turner and Mark uh, Yates. All know, those guys. Yeah. Gary Ablett, yeah, like it was fantastic. So And then we moved on to um, t- Toronto for the final. And mm. I, when we got to go Geelong, I don't know why, and we stayed uh, at the Old York, which was a big hotel yeah. in Toronto. Toronto's a Great city, very much like Melbourne. And in the hotel we had Hawthorne staying, Collingwood staying and Geelong staying. And you know what yeah. used to happen? Because it was sponsored by Fosters, yep. they used to restock our fridge every, every day. day in our Slab. And all the <laughs> Would have been good the for the pre-season. <laughs> well, it was, just, yeah, it was just a really – you know, footy, footy trips are, are pretty much banned now and that was probably at the end of it in 88. But no, we I had do, a fantastic I, time. And look, I'll be honest with you, the folks behaved themselves like – because the officials were all I, on the trip, the I coaches. D- were I don't on the trip. believe you. I yes, do remember. I do remember that Miami yeah. thing. I remember yeah. they advertised the game on TV oh, the, that were playing at Joe Robbie Stadium. The meat one. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was Australia. It was Australian football. So I forget yeah. which players got to do the ad, and it was like them eating a big dinosaur bone raw. Yeah, you know, it was like these <laughs> these. These you, mon- you, you were in it. You look like Fred Flintstone gnawing <laughs> on a Bronte burger. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the, how the, they advertised us as like these big, oh. hunky Australian brute, brute men, brutes. Yeah. yeah, because we didn't wear pads or helmets. Like or these like cavemen, that. almost. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, uh, but that, but that was a great trip. That's how we sort of really met. I kicked, and eight, then, uh, I kicked eight in that game. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was my last game at the Joe Robbie Stadium, but. Um, um, and then, uh, yeah, because of that uh, connection, when he c- came down to Lawn, we we, we connected and away we went. So, so it's sort of uh, only been been in, it's only been an intimate relationship since you started coming no, to no, Lawn. No, no, well, no. Well, it, probably, but mm. we had common friends as well. Like yeah. Rick Barham played at Collingwood, who yeah. I played with, who yeah. was Mick's best mate. Yeah. Uh, we had um, well, well uh, Banksy, Dennis, uh, Banks. Dennis Banks, yeah. and Jeff Miles, yeah. and all these other guys yeah. that yeah. Mick and I both had. Nick some, Theodosi, Nick didn't Theodosi, play, but he yep. was a mad Collingwood supporter. All, all these guys. So, yeah. so, so after your career, which mm-hmm. was, um, which was, you ended up captaining the Cats, I think, for three years. Yep. Who was who was your coach at the time? Uh, that was basically through uh, Tommy Hafey's era. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. And then when John Devine got there, he sacked me, but I made him sack me. I didn't state. That uh, I had family, uh, too busy with my family or my career or anything. I, I made him sack me, which yeah, which I, which was pretty hard to do. But I stayed loyal to Geelong. Well, getting sacked as captain is not something great, that's great. Oh right. So I'm, but I made him sack me. I didn't step down. I made him. You know, he had to sack me, um, which is not great because I thought I'd finished my career as captain at Geelong, and I should have, hundred um, percent. John Devine was uh, way out of his depth as a coach. Um, not speaking ill of the dead because poor old John's gone. He was a very good person, but. Um, you know, he, he was way out of his depth in, in the coaching at that stage of his life and his career and um, um, it was just one of those things that happened. So, you know, um, you know I had Richmond chase me for a lot, lot, long time in my career and that incl- that's Graham Richmond, their great recruiter, 
And it was probably because I had good games against Richmond. But uh, no, I could have ended up a Geelong yeah. chase me. I yeah. was going to go to yeah. Geelong at yeah. one stage. Yeah, yeah, was, it, but it was hard to get out of your club in those days, Brian, because mm. um, they virtually uh, owned you and uh, they'd have to do a deal with another club. And look, the money wasn't what was enticing to leave either because at the end of my career I can remember sitting um, sit, sitting uh, and getting an offer to go to Collingwood and I was on 50000 at Geelong and I think Gubby Allen and the rest of the people at Collingwood offered me offered me sixty. Well, I wasn't going to drive up to Collingwood all you know, all week and not be home for for, for ten thousand dollars. Mick was one of the great wingmen, Harrison. In in Mick's era, I just want you to have a listen to this. The, these the wing the guy that played or the two guys that played on the wing were like they were like the stars. Really, they were big players. I guess the full forwards were probably stars as well. But wingmen were really important in those days. Big grounds, all that sort of thing. But th- this is the quality of the wingman. So Mick Turner, um, Robbie Flower, Keith Gregg, um, Mick what, Wayne Schimmelbush, Wayne Schimmelbush um, names like this just keep coming at you. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, who was at Richmond? Uh, who was the ring? Yeah, Brian Wood. Uh, Brian Wood at, yeah. at Richmond. The, yeah. All these were fantastic. Francis Burke. Francis Burke, fantastic players in that particular time. So it was a great a great era for wingman as, as well. So Mick was a great player. As I said before, he and his old man, that must have been a thrill of your life to, that you're both named. When when Geelong named their team of the century, they named your dad on one wing who was 50, uh, 40s, 50s and 60s? Yeah, 50s. 50s, and then they named you on the other wing. That is That must have been an incredible thrill. Yeah, it was a, that, was a, that was a big thrill because a few others, uh, father and sons got in, the Sylvanis got in, but in a different position. Did mm. the Whittons both get in? To, no. To, no, no, no. Young, young Ted didn't no. get in, did he? No. So who else got in? Father and son, there's no, not, not many. I didn't think there was any. No, no. So I think uh, you knew the answer to that. Well, no, I knew the Sylvanis <laughs> did. I wasn't quite sure. No, the Fletchers didn't. Uh, I wasn't quite sure about the Wittens. Um, but yeah, you did, for Dad and I to get uh, named on the uh, on the wings was a big thrill, and it was a, it was a big, certainly a very very big function. Um, Geelong side, but when you they don't you it, don't go to Geelong functions. No, well, I just I don't go to any footy functions, Brian. I don't even go to the football. I just watch what, it on the why TV. Why is that? Um, I, I don't have a need to go. I just I'm, again, I, you just move on are with you your dis- life. Are you disillusioned with it? I was no. I, what what happened to me at Geelong? Um, yeah, when you when you leave your club and you you're probably one of their better players and um and uh, also uh, you know, you're an ex captain and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, the, the, I, I would have loved to have been involved in an AFL club, particularly Geelong, because it's your club. So. You know, people may or may not know, but I was interviewed for the oh, – you love this one. So I was interviewed for the coaching job um, at the end of my career when Malcolm Blight got it. And Malcolm Blight should have got it. He was coaching West Torrens and he's a great player. He had experience at North Melbourne. Um, and I was interviewed for the job. Um, I made a very, very bad mistake. And Malcolm Blight might have, mightn't have wanted me, but Geelong spoke to me about being assistant coach to him. I should have done that. Mm. Uh, I cracked it and I went and coached Werribee because I was teaching up there, uh, which with the Werribee part wasn't a mistake, but doing that was a mistake. Um, who else was interviewed at that time for the job? Um, there was me, Malcolm Blight, John Newman was interviewed for the job. John Newman. John Newman, you know, people would sit back and laugh then, but at the time, you know, John was a very serious person. That's Sam. Yeah, Sam Newman, else. John Sam Newman. I always call him John. And then I was interviewed for the job again um, when Gary Ayres got it. But Gary Ayres was the assistant coach and, and coached their VFL side, so he's in the right spot to get it. But I still believe – I was a pretty strong candidate then, and then after the Gary Ayres one, I, I um, the club approached me about being football operations manager. Had a meeting with Gary Ayres. He didn't feel that comfortable about me because I went for the coach's job, and it wasn't about that. I just wanted to work for the Geelong Football Club in a in a senior position. So he 
he um, he knocked that one on the head and then Paul Armstrong, who was running the Falcons at the time, got it, which allowed me to work for um, AFL Victoria so you and went run to, the Geelong Falcons. So you went to the Geelong Falcons, 26 years. You yep. became the most successful regional manager and uh, identifier of talent in the country, the most successful, Harrison. So this is the, the TAC success- Cup, now the uh, Coast League. The most successful region in Australia was this man, 26 years. Uh, I think, Mick, I read something about your your best, the day that you enjoy most was in one of the grand finals that Geelong played, I think, against Sydney. And I think you had nine players represented from the Geelong Falcons in those sides, which was give us some incredible. names that walk through the doors at the Falcons. The fact, the Footy Factory, as Brian likes to refer to it on Jeez, Channel Seven. Did I pump you up? Yeah, yeah. No, Brian looked after us as a bit of a standing joke. But now, look, the the program. Um, who, who were they, Mick? Come on. The program was you know, incredibly successful, and uh, um, you know, and probably the the part that no one else can come to is the only uh, bit that I quote is that when Sam Walsh is finally appointed captain of uh, Carlton, which he will be at some stage, we, we would have had nine AFL captains now. No school, mm. no academy program, no anything gets anywhere like that. So, nine AFL captains. Yeah, so Nick, Ma- Nick Maxwell, uh, premiership captain, Luke Hodge, premiership captain, Cameron Ling, premiership captain. Wow. Travis Boak was captain of Port. Um, Jonathan Brown, captain of uh, um, obviously the Brisbane Lions. I'd have to get my list out and check it all. Um, Gary Ablett, captain of uh, the Suns. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. So, you know, Sam Walsh will be the ninth um, AFL captain. So so it's a so good effort. Name some other effort. players. Jimmy Bartell. Well, Jimmy Bartell, Gary Ablett Jr. came through. Paddy Dangerfield, mm. yeah, well, who's a captain now. That's the other yeah. AFL captain. Uh, yeah, just a whole lot of great players. Um, uh, Jordan Lewis, who came from, you know, Warrnambool. So when I put our best side down, it's a, it's a pretty exceptional side in terms of uh, capt- AFL captains. And what is, what is your role within that for someone who wouldn't understand? Yeah, well, back back in the day when I was um, a regional manager or, or, or AFL talent manager, your job is basically a combination of uh, being the CEO of the club because you do all the sponsorship and you do all the budgeting with the AFL and all that sort of stuff. And you're also like the footy operations manager. So you run all that side of thing. But because it's a development program, you've got a lot of say in who's selected on the list and who's selected in the team. And you've ha- actually got final say on all of that. So the coaches can have discussions about things. Um, and are you know, working a lot with the managers and list managers yeah. of um, the uh, AFL clubs? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, in, in your own club, you're managing all that stuff. So when I uh, when I left the Falcons, we had um, you know an under-16 program. Um, we oversaw an under-15 program. The girls' program had been going about – uh, three or four years, you know, for the AFL women's, and we had the under 18s with with the draft. So I was managing, you know, there, there was I was full time. I had, you know, a couple of staff that were about point five, a female talent manager and our football operations manager. But I was managing uh, and all getting paid fifty five staff. So you're managing those staff, and sometimes part time staff are harder to manage than uh, full time staff because they're they're all the time and they can give you as much. So, uh, but yeah, just answering your question on the AFL list. Yeah, you know, we we collected a lot of data. We were pretty professional. Everything was done on computer and with champion data. And Did all, all clubs ring you, Mick? Did mm, all, like, most like if they're looking at talent, yeah, yeah. I would think it's incumbent mm. on every recruiter from yeah. every club to ring, especially a major outsourcer of players like yours, to ring the regional manager and find out the do's and don'ts of every player. Were there? 
quite amazingly, you and I have had conversations, mm. there were actually clubs that didn't ring you at various stages. Yeah, I had a pretty good relationship with, with all the clubs and I was always honest. But what used to happen is that at the start of the year they would come around and speak to you, you know, probably with three or four recruiters. Um, Adrian Dodoro at Eston had probably been five or six with him and, and you'd go through your list and present who you thought was going to get drafted, who was a chance, maybe a rookie and who to watch. You haven't seen much of them but you need to watch this kid because he's going to be a, a very, very good player. And then at the end of the year they, they, they would contact you during the year at various levels, come to all the games obviously, give you the odd phone call and at the end of the year they'd come back again. But at the end of the year it was a little bit different because by then they knew who'd retired, who was injured, who dropped out of form and they were after um, you know, filling up their list either by trading or by dra- drafting. So uh, um, they would talk to you about certain players um, and um, you'd get a fair indication who was getting you drafted there. But, look, out of the 18 teams, I, I would have had conversations each year with at least 15. A couple of teams mightn't contact you. They were a little bit maybe because they were secretive or thought you might going to say something to Geelong or something like that. But, um, you know, there's been instances when our players have been drafted and, and I've been absolutely shocked, number one, if, that they weren't. Or number two, that they got drafted very high. Was up. there ever a scenario where a club has said to you and they've really liked a player mm. and they're like, maybe it's someone on the fringe and yeah. they're like, don't play him. We're going to take him. Don't play. Another like, one. Like, like, we hide want him. No, well, yeah, hide him. No, well, that's not going to happen. That's not right. going to happen with me because um, it's, 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 on my, um, it's on my head to make sure that everyone's got, everyone's got equal opportunity. Yep. You've got to understand that your star players can also help other players get drafted. Um, and that's a very, very important it, thing. So when you go to the finals, when every recruiter is looking at your game very, very closely, particularly in those finals games or for the Vic Country games, um, you've got to play your best players who, because they, they can help one of your younger kids who might be 17, you know, give them a bit of support and then they'll, they'll get drafted the next year. What right. I have seen without, a, without 100%, I've seen clubs get to particularly players who are father and son without mentioning names and get to them and say, now, listen, we're going to draft you. Um, we know you're in the finals and Mick's going to make you play, uh, just do what you have to. And I've seen that happen. And that is that is absolutely wrong and absolutely cheating and, and it's an inco- it's it's a, just a bad rap on the family got, and the kid himself. Who got drafted higher than you thought they would get drafted? Is there anyone that stood out as someone you went, wow, that's incredible? Um, no, that- no, I think the AFL clubs were pretty much on the mark. The one that surprised me towards the end of my career was Ned McHenry got drafted to Adelaide first round mm-hmm. and I knew he was always going to get drafted. He was a good player, played with us in Geelong College and I thought maybe a third round and Adelaide took him in the first round. But that's what Harrison was talking about before. Adelaide didn't speak to us at all about him, okay, right. did not speak to him. Us and I, uh, I actually had a go at a couple of the recruiters after the draft and said, "Look, yeah, why didn't you ring us about Ned McHenry? Oh, we did a lot of homework on him." They said, and I said, "Well, yeah, but you didn't do any with us. We see him three times a week. We see yeah. him play every game. We see him when he's up. We see him when he's down. We see him when he's mm. having a bad day or a good day." I would have thought whether it was me, the footy manager, or particularly the coach, that you would check, you know, and see what we thought of him. Now, I I, I would have rated him a, a second or third round player, not a first round player, you know. So so those things do happen. How hard is it, mm-hmm. and I know you've had this, where you had mates that have had sons that have come through your program yeah. um, and sometimes they measure up and sometimes they don't measure up yeah. and you have to be brutally honest with them. How tough a conversation is that? Uh, you have a conversation first with the player and, you know, that's happened to me a lot of times and uh, you, you've hit, hit the nail on the head and then eventually if it gets to a point where the player's not getting a game and you can feel that dad particularly is getting a bit angsty about it, 
And, and and dads do. I, I was no different. You want, and you were no different. Yep. You want your sons to do well. Um, you know, my both my sons went to through the Falcons program when I was the you know the talent manager. And it's a very very hard thing to manage. Very hard to manage. So it's a it's an emotional thing. But all you can do is when, once you feel that the the opportunity has ceased for the player uh, who's a mate, you know, one of you or mate, what his dad's a mate or someone you know really well, you, you just call them in because you can feel that the angst coming on and uh, they're feeling a bit easy and you just have that conversation with them and, and be honest as you can. And I've often said to them, look, I don't think he's going to get any more opportunity. He might be better going back and playing with his local club and that's just the way it is. Is it true that you almost had to fancy dress Lingy? Uh, Lingy, it was, if you could imagine a cattle market with a cattle being auctioned mm. and there's this dirty old strapper out the back uh, rear end here. And he just looked a bit sloppy, and you know, you had to dress him up. You had to, you had to make him look more appealing to um, to an AFL club to get him drafted. Yep. Is that story true? Or well, not? there was t- there's two instances, and they both became became great players. But Jimmy Bartellis, a 16 year old, used to wear a helmet like yep. one of those ones like Jason Dunstall had, which used to make him look a bit clumbersome, not as tall as he was, and. Um, uh, and yeah, just a, a, not as athletic. And I had a conversation with his mother um, a couple of times about can we get the helmet off, and she was concerned about concussion and all that. And eventually, we convinced her, and we managed it really well. Not me, but the club managed it well. And uh, the helmet came off, and uh, he looked a lot better without it. Looked a lot more athletic, and you know, the rest is history. You okay. know, he's a Brownlow medalist and yep. Norm Smith medalist, and has done everything. Now, the Cameron Ling one was an interesting one because as a 17-year-old, he played for us as a full forward and he was quite a stocky, not tall full forward, had his socks down and uh, all those sorts of things and um, his, his shorts were a bit long and he missed the draft. And remember, AFL clubs only had one 17-year-old pick in those days, so only 18 kids got drafted but didn't get drafted and was pretty devastated because he'd done everything and dominated football and played for Vic Country. And, and it's a true story. So the next year we, we had a conversation with him and his parents that said, look, not trying to be smart, but I think this is the way we've got to play it. Number one, we're not going to play it full forward all the time. We're going to play it centre-half forward, centre-half back and even on the ball. And he did become a great elite uh, tagging and running with uh, on baller in the AFL and obviously Geelong Premiership captain. I said, well, you need to get your hair cut, linger. Like, I mean, short, up the sides, you know, so it makes you look Why? taller and more athletic. Oh, you look taller. Makes you look taller and more athletic rather than the, the, the locks coming down like a few people we know around. Yeah. Oh, it looks a bit, makes them look a bit daggy and that. Um, and the second thing we're going to do is we're going to get you a size 20 pair of shorts, which are going to be very long, long in the legs, like Larry Donnie, who used to wear, right. uh, a bit long in the legs, but we're going to get uh, your mother to cut them short so and your what? legs look longer. Uh-huh. So this is true. Your legs look longer. So big shorts so they're not too tight on your rump, bit of movement in them, does makes you look a bit more athletic, and they are very short in the leg to make your legs look longer. And the last thing, you cannot play with your socks down. We're going to give you a pair of long socks, which not many people wore that day, and you've got to wear them right up to Why? your knees. What does that do? Because it makes your legs look longer and uh-huh. you look more athletic. Yeah. So I'm not saying those things got him drafted, but – Just the little finishing touches. Little finishing, little f- cosmetic finishing touches and the fact that we didn't play him full forward. We played him in a lot of other positions and ruck rover and that sort of thing. And, and look, it was still line ball going to the draft. Brian Cook had only just taken over at Geelong as CEO – and I think that they were looking for a bit of local content in Geelong to, you know, to make give the club that good feeling. And they took Linger pretty late in the draft, and it was very, very line ball. He could have missed. You know, players like Luke Dalhouse could have missed, premiership player. And look, a great thing with both of those boys, they got drafted. And I always knew if they had got drafted, they would give it a hundred percent. And if you give it a hundred percent, you're going to improve. Did. 
which he yeah. did. Delhouse did, Ling did. Look, all of them, most of them do. Some, you know, stuff it up and uh, and don't take their opportunities. But they worked their butts off to become better players, and uh, and they're both premiership players, so they've got both great stories. Who is your favourite? Not necessarily the player; mm. it could be the player, but the person that we would know well. Oh, I've got to have a star pupil. Well, I've got a, I've got a lot of them, but my, I've got a bit of a soft spot for Luke Hodge. I must admit, he was a Colac boy that came into our program and, and played in a premiership on the MCG when they played the TAC Cup before the big grand final. And um, so he played in the premiership as a 16-year-old. He was a superstar. And then that was in 2000 and then played in the preliminary final, which we should have won. We probably should have won the premiership the next year. But he was a bit injured as a 17-year-old. So, um, look, Luke Hodge was a typical country boy. He loved playing cricket. He loved playing with his mates. He was from Colac. Uh, there's no doubt he liked having a beer when we you know, didn't <laughs> did see you him. Did you see a bit of yourself in him, perhaps? Um, maybe a little bit. Um, <laughs> certainly did, did better than I did. But uh, um, he, uh, yeah, he was a bit of a lad and he was, he was fairly hard to manage. But when the draft came around, I still remember going to Hawthorne and um, with the coach, Damien Christensen, and they had three names written on a board, Judd, Ball and Hodge. And all their recruiters and coaches and Peter Swab and everyone was there and we went through it all and, you know, I just said, look, you know, Judd's had two shoulder he's, – he's done his shoulders, he's 18, uh, he's a great player, but there's a bit of a question mark there. And, of course, you know, Juddy is a superstar and, and got out of the blocks really quickly. I said, Luke Ball's only 17, he'll be at Xavier College next year, so he's probably not going to play a lot of football for you earlier. And we spoke about Luke, all the positives about Luke Hodge. And in the end I said, look, what, what do you need? And this is true. What do you need out of your first pick, your number one draft pick? They said, look – we really need someone who can go down back and shore us up, go into the midfield, maybe get the ball out of the centre and go forward and kick some goals. I said, well, that's who you're after. You need Luke Hodge. And they took him number one. It took him a couple of years to mature into it because he was only a young kid. He was only 17 and he was a little bit wayward, a little bit undisciplined and he was injured. He had osteopubis in those days and um, his fitness wasn't great. But, look, he worked his way into it and, um, you know, and he became an absolutely outstanding player, you know, four-time, you know, Premiership player, Premiership captain, and free size. You know, he's not that much bigger than me. Just an absolute gun. Private school mm. football. Yep. TAC Cup football. Yep. Private schools reluctant to let their students play for the TAC Cup teams. Yes. Unbelievable. When yeah. I when I look at football today and the past thirty years, Mick, I see a career. Just like I see one of the students could be an English teacher or a maths teacher or an engineer or whatever or a biologist. So why wouldn't schools give them every chance of succeeding? The best coaching was coming out of the TAC Cup, not out of schools. Some schools had good coaches but not all. Some of them were teachers. Was that a really hard thing to get players from private school to commit to TAC Cup football because the schools would not let them play TAC Cup? All yeah. the time. Look, it was always a challenge with the schools because, uh, you know, whether it's a, a private school or a Catholic school or any school, they're, they're playing in certain competitions and the school, for their own prestige, want the best players available. And, look, I have but had – That's for their own prestige. That's yeah. not for the benefit of the player. Though. No, no, and that's a conversation we used to have. And, um, look, I had that conversation with uh, Geelong Grammar in our case and Geelong College and more so St Joseph's College. They were a lot more challenging to deal with. Um, but, you know, it comes back to – you go to any school and you look at their mission statement, their mission statement would say something like this, we are here to help your son or daughter reach their full potential. Yes, that's Whether right. that be academic, sporting, uh, artistic, musical, whatever. Yep. So that's what I used to quote to them. But, um, and, and, and that's what it is. So you know, in, in my case, 
Not so much now because what was the TAC Cup, which became the NAB League and there's the Coach League, it's been watered down a fair bit. Um, but it, it was very professional in our days and we had a lot of staff and, and a lot of expertise within the club and um, that was something that we had to manage. With the private schools, we couldn't stop them playing at the in the APS um, because they played with their schools and uh, a lot of those uh, said players were on scholarships, which were worth a lot of money. So you're on a big scholarship. It was a, a pain in the ass for you, wasn't it? It was painful. You bring yeah. up an interesting – But St. Jo- schools like St. Joseph's were harder to deal with um, – H without cutting you off because they were playing in competitions on a Wednesday. So, you know, if one of our star players, let's say Jimmy Bartell plays on a Wednesday, we can't train him on Tuesday because mm. he's going to play Wednesday. This is what people don't think through. There are connotations to it. And then if he plays Wednesday, we can't train him Thursday because he's in rehab. And then we uh, we run him out on Saturday because he's played, you know, two games two during the week. the week. He's a bit jaded mentally and physically and doesn't play that well and misses the draft. So I come back to the point again that, you know, the school's, or clubs or whoever, particularly schools, have got to <coughs> go back to their own mission statements and have a look and say, well, the kids are there to reach their full potential mm. and we're going to help them. If it's a gymnast going to Melbourne in the Victorian Institute of Sport, they'd be going to Melbourne we to had, do gymnastics. We had the same trouble with <laughs> Assumption College and I know uh, all of the major private schools in Melbourne have the same problem. I yeah. wasn't getting picked at Cannon, so I didn't really have an mm. issue with it. But um, <laughs> while you're coughing your, your, your yeah. lungs up there, <laughs> um, you brought up a good point because Brian and myself were having a conversation around the draft a mm. little while ago and how we don't know these players all that well, whether it be within Victoria in the TSC Cup system or Coach League system or across the nation, do you think there's a realistic chance that the Coats League is like a broadcast-worthy product in terms of that's the way we're going to get to know these players and see them more, like, 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 like the, the N- NCAA yeah. in the college football and basketball? Look, I think uh, it's, it's lost a little bit of its luster at the moment. I'm not saying that because I'm out of it. But um, back in the TAC Cup days, uh, it was managed by AFL Victoria, which doesn't exist anymore. So to explain to people, the AFL are the body that manages football in Australia. In each state, you've got AFL Queensland, AFL Tasmania, and we had AFL Victoria, which was run by Ken Gannon and David Code and uh, John Hook and people like that. They had some great people there. But the AFL, in their wisdom, didn't want two bodies within Victoria. So they dismantled AFL Victoria and it went to central office. And as soon as it went to central office, in my opinion, everything changed. Because AFL Victoria, that was their main product, the TAC Cup, right? So it was it was well promoted. It was got a lot of publicity. It had its own TV program with Hutchie. Do you remember mm. TAC Sunday Future mornings. Stars Sunday, on, yeah. on a Sunday morning? So it yep. used to get a lot of publicity. It gets none of that now. And as I said, I had I had um, I had fifty five staff at the at the Falcons are one of those programs now. They've probably got fifteen to twenty. So it has been watered down a lot, and it doesn't get the publicity it used to. Um, so it's it's never going to end up. It won't end up like a high school competition in America because we haven't got the population or the college system. But um, compared to what it was, um, again, not because I was there, but because what was happening, it had a big profile. And you would have known that, Harrison. Uh, but now it hasn't hasn't got that same profile. And you also got to remember in the AFL, it was an expansion time in the AFL and there was probably 120-odd draft picks going around. If you have a look at the draft this year, there were 68 kids drafted plus a couple of rookies. So... It's much more difficult to get drafted now, much more difficult. So uh, you've probably got half the players getting drafted now than what they used to. Just before we uh, finish it up, mm. um, just a couple of little stories I'm interested in. Oh, yeah. Uh, you had a you like cars. You're a bit Still of a, do. You're a bit of a car man, yeah. of a top-end sort of European yeah. car man. I think, it, think um, it's that OCD sort of. Yeah. No, no, it's just I like cars. Loves his cars, always has from yeah. when he was a young boy. Yeah. Uh, this was when you were a young boy. Um I'm led to believe you bought an Alfa Romeo 
Oh, nice piece of car. Like Alfa in Romeo that, in, in those in, days was In 1980 they were. Huge. It's not a car, that's an Alfa Romeo. It was like a Ferrari. And uh, Mick had this new Alfa. Anyway, is it true that you went to Melbourne and you were coming home from an event in Melbourne? Well, you tell the story. What what happened? Well, um, to the new Alfa Romeo. I'm a, I'm a bit of a Porsche man, as you know, but uh, and Porsches weren't as big back then as they are now. But to buy a Porsche in Geelong uh, was about thirty grand. It was just a bit out of my reach at that stage. And uh, so when I went to a, a business called Gilly Gordon, and I, I actually liked Alfa Romeos, and I bought. He told me one of the dearest, expensive cars ever bought in Geelong. So I bought a custom-made Alfa Romeo <laughs> with a Momo steering wheel and Momo mags and Pioneer stereo system and all the bells and whistles and that. It was red, of course, with a sunroof and everything like that. And uh, I paid 21000 for it. And I was living with Kevin Sheen at the time, who works at the AFL, and he was in a brand-new unit and he paid 36000 for it. And I got my car parked there worth 21000 So worked that one out. So but, you um, chose the car instead of the unit? Correct, and I yeah. lived with Kevin Sheen because it was good for my image. But anyhow, um, I was going out with uh, the beautiful Karen, who I've been married to for 41 years, yep. a fantastic girl, as you know. And uh, we'd been out in Melbourne. For some reason we took the Alfa Romeo up and uh, – we're driving back from Melbourne, and, and you weren't uh, driving though. No, you're... I was, and and usually I would have been, but uh, I'd showed a bit of common sense that night and let her drive, and um, because I'd been drinking, of course, I think I'd been out with all the Collingwood crew and that, and uh, so we're driven from Melbourne to Nor Lane. If people know where Nor Lane is, where the swimming pool is, so that's you're a fast, long drive. You're fast asleep as you passed I'm, I'm, I'm asleep the whole trip, and uh, we get to the Nor Lane uh, intersection where the the swimming pool is, just about past the Sundowner Hotel, and. Uh, I wake up because we're at the uh, we're at the traffic lights and I can smell something burning. Oh, what could you smell? And I thought, what the hell? What's happened to me car? Like something's burning, and I said, I look down and the, the frigging handbrakes on. <laughs> She's <laughs> driven my brand new Alfa Romeo from <laughs> Melbourne to Nor Lane with the handbrake on. Oh no! I wonder <laughs> it didn't catch on fire. So look, cut the long story short, without being too dramatic, and yeah. I hope I'm I'll probably get myself into trouble here. We had a massive blue. She got out of the car. And you've got to realise I was living in Heighton, which is the other side, with Karen uh, in David Clark's old unit, which we bought for about 36000 I think. <laughs> and um, so we've had a massive blue. She's jumped out of the car in a huff and uh, I've jumped into the driver's seat, which I probably shouldn't have done, and, uh, and I've driven home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've what just am- left her. So I've what? left I've on the left, side of the road. I've left uh, at the corner of Norlane and Cryo, and if you know Geelong very well, it's not <laughs> the best suburbs to be in. And I've driven to the more ritzy end of um uh, Geelong, which is was heightened where I was, and uh, I'd left her uh, and didn't come back and get her, which was just crazy. I just went home and selfishly went to bed. Do you know how far it is from the Norlane swimming pool to Heighton? I wouldn't 12, have any idea. 12 kilometres. <laughs> she ran home, took her shoes off and ran home 12 kilometres. That's how resilient and tough yeah, my that wife is. disgraceful. Is. Well, back in nineteen in the uh, 1980, it was it was ordinary behaviour. Very but it, ordinary. But, but it's – and I agree it was ordinary behaviour, very selfish on my part – these days, it would be completely unacceptable. Yep, you would be true. You would be shot, and you, and and your girl would be on Instagram slamming you, and uh, you'd be on social media, and you, you would never be able to go anywhere again. You'd be cancelled. You'd be cancelled. I would have been. Oh, well, just, I've been, I would be cancelled. Back yeah. on the footy days, is yeah. Gary Ablett the best ever senior? That is uh, certainly as an individual player, he uh, he was. Um, 
It was interesting when he first came to the club. Uh, I was on one wing. Uh, Greg Williams, we, we got down from Bendigo because he couldn't get a look in at Carlton. He was in the centre and Gary Ablett was on the other wing. So everyone talks about the greatest centre line ever at Richmond being Burke. Oh, so you're Barrett. putting yourself in the mm. greatest centre Well, it was, in a, it, was, it was on the uh, there's a fairly big article written about it this year, so, Brian, which you mightn't have. Uh, so seen. Turner, yeah. Williams, Williams, Ablett. Ablett. It's not a bad line. How many Brownlows between... That group. Well, Gary Ablett didn't win one and either die, but uh, Greg Williams won two and he should have won three. But our total possessions for that day were, I think, 105. Um, and, I mean, Ablett was just unstoppable and Williams, well, he just kept handballing the ball to me, which was fantastic. Um, but, you know, it, it, I'm not saying it rivals Clay, Barrett and Burke at Richmond because they played together for 10 years. Which but is you are time. saying that. We, we only played together for about 10 games because Ablett ended up going to uh, – Full forward, but to answer your question, he's certainly the most spectacular player I've ever seen. You know, for someone who didn't train that much, uh, did a bit of boxing, but from someone who didn't train that much. Um, what do you mean he didn't train that? Well, much? Well, he didn't like training very much. It was at just all. too good. If we went on a five k time trial, which I didn't like myself because I, I I like you know doing repeat sprinting and all that sort of stuff, he'd be last by a mile. Billy Brown would be second last, and I'd be probably in the group that's third last. So. Um, he didn't. He didn't like training. He that astonishes me. How it is. It is interesting though that Mick mm. says that about you know one of the greatest players. I played with Kevin Bartlett, one yeah. of the greatest players ever, for over four hundred games yeah. of footy. Kevin Bartlett. And admittedly, I got there towards the end of his career, yeah. and and he he trained by himself yeah. basically. He didn't really train yeah. that much with yeah. the group. Phil Carmen was the same. Yeah, Phil Carmen used to get there at three o'clock in the afternoon when yeah. training was at six. Mark Jackson. And trained before they got this there. This is what I mean about the yeah. argument of your age, your generation. You wouldn't get a game today. If No, they would. If, no, if, no. if Paddy Dangerfield said Oh no! I'm not coming to train. I'm coming halfway through. I'm not coming at no. all. I'm just going to no. walk. No, on. no. But that, I get, I get. <laughs> I'm that, just stirring you that up. Was the thing, but uh, let me tell you something because we get asked this question, Mick, yeah. and, and really annoys me, Harrison, that you would even joke about such a thing. Mission but, accomplished. But um, you know, if we were trained the same way they are today, that is in a fully professional, committed environment getting paid a million dollars getting paid a lot of money for motivation then mm. you would find that all of the players of past years because they all had the football smarts about them most of them did probably more than they do now and they would have all acclimatized to the harsh training conditions and they would have all been great pro footballers well our, our training conditions Harrison were brutal because we went to work all day like for example when I was uh, first married and living at Ocean Grove I get up every morning from Ocean Grove drive into Geelong, get in a carpool or drive myself to Werribee to teach all day, then drive home to Geelong and get to training at half past five, six o'clock. You know, and they used to flog you in those days, not intensely like they do now he was scientifically. A He's, so, I was a plumber digging yeah, holes. That's right. So all... Brian's the same doing hard physical work and then you get to training. So you train basically from six o'clock to at least eight o'clock, yep. come in and do a little bit of rehab. I'd get home at nine o'clock for tea, go to bed, get up the next morning and do the same thing. Yep. Now, the professional footballers now, they train during the day. Yes, they train very scientifically. They're getting paid. The average now is 400000 each player gets on an AFL list and the really, really good ones like Brian and I are on a million dollars. Mm. Brian is full forward. Me is an elite winger who can run, <laughs> bounce the ball, kick so goals, myself. take marks and all that sort of stuff. Like players like Lockie Whitfield and those that play similar positions to me are on a million dollars. So mm. would I be really professional have a different attitude? Absolutely. Mm. I would be unbelievably yep. 100% committed, not that I wasn't at Geelong, but fully professional because I know it's going to set you up for life. Mick, let's talk about someone else for a little bit. When mm. has someone gone above and beyond in your life, either personal or professional or both, 
I, I've got someone in mind. I'm sure that you you'd be able to share the uh, enthusiasm with. Yeah. When someone gone above and beyond for you to help me? Yeah. yeah. Um. Well. Well, we spoke about meals during my illness. Uh, I had a, a few people go um, above and beyond, and, and the bloke sitting next to me did a fair bit for me. I wasn't expecting that. I that. <laughs> well, I, no, no, but I do. Brian and I got a. We're, we're good mates, and uh, I probably saw another side to Brian when I got uh, my illness. I didn't see it personally. I was only told about it, but uh, he certainly has got, without going into, into detail, uh, uh, a softer side. And uh, the support I got from Brian and uh, and a lot of other people, but, you know, because Brian's in lawn and I'm in lawn, uh, you know, it was, uh, was pretty exceptional. So I, I certainly appreciate that. But, you know, in your life a lot of people do things for you, but... Uh, when you're really uh, when you're really crook and tested, uh, you probably tend to remember those things a little bit more. Do you like to say anything in response, Brian? <laughs> no, as, no. as we're opening no, up here, it's very nice of Michael to say that. But there were many people that were uh, were, were the same as me, you know, that were trying to help Mick. Oh, you're a big softy, big cuddly bear. Mick's also responsible for, along with myself, but uh, we've organised the lawn function mm-hmm. here for the last ten years. Yep, where we raise a lot of money for the local community. Mick and I have done that together. For the last is this years. about you? You guys again? About us again? Yes. It's, yep. it's all about us. Anything else you want to say, Mick? Before we uh, turn it off? No, nah, just that uh, you know, life's interesting. You've got to make uh, every post a winner. We all make mistakes, and uh, hopefully, um, you know, you learn from your mistakes. And I've made plenty of them. And uh, you just uh, you say to your kids, yeah, that you're bringing up, learn learn from your mistakes. Don't make the same mistake again, and uh, and be honest. Own up, own up to what you do, Brian, and uh, and just be honest with yourself. Greatest footy trip you ever went on, Mick, was where? Uh, probably um, LA and uh, Las Vegas and Hawaii in 1984 because I took the whole team away, 32 players, on my own without a Geelong official. I was well, the you captain. were the team official. I took the whole team away and, and you know, obviously uh, they had a great time but they were very, very well behaved. Now, on that trip we had Mark Jackson, Ooh. Greg Williams, Ooh. Gary Ablett, Ray Sarsavik for people <laughs> in Geelong who know him. Mark Yates, Stephen Bert, Bernard Tui. No, Lunny would, was well long gone by right. then. Um, we took a lot of characters away, and they, uh, you know, and I had one sort of part time Geelong official come with me, um, who was who was fantastic. But uh, we had no um, no one from the board, no um, paid Geelong official come with us, and uh, it was a, it was a Andrew Buse was on the trip too. It was a, just a fantastic trip. They were the best. Gary trips. Ablett was on the trip. Mm. There's a few there. Hard to control. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Mick. It's been a pleasure. Um, it was yes. great hearing your Thanks, story. Thanks. And, um, yeah, we, we can't wait to see more of you around lawn. Thanks, mate. Take care.